from Radio 720 WGN Chicago. It's time for Extension 720. Here's your host, Milt Rosenberg. The book most under discussion these days, these weeks, is the new biography of Ronald Reagan by Edmund Morris, titled Dutch, A Memoir of Ronald Reagan, and just published by Random House. More about uh, Edmund Morris in a moment. We have two Morrises on the program for the price of one. Uh, they are not related as far as they know or I know, but uh, one of the people I most admire and enjoy in town when it comes to seeking intelligent conservative commentary is Joe Morris, who is a leading lawyer in town and who served uh, in the Reagan administration in a variety of different posts, uh, one of them being Assistant Attorney General, uh, where he provided liaison services for the United States Department of Justice. Uh, as for Edmund Morris, uh, he is the author of the new biography, as I say. Uh, he was born and raised in Chicago, the son of an English mother and a father whose family were the only Jewish members of the turn-of-the-century meatpacking elite. His first home uh, on Lakeshore Drive in Bellevue Place, I believe, was little more than a mile from where we sit at this moment. Perhaps most remarkable is that he celebrated his 87th birthday little more than two months ago. You are, sir, the oldest biographer yet to appear on this program, and probably also the only one on our roster to have won both the Pulitzer Prize and the American Book Award. <laughs> well, thank you for that uh, introduction. I hope my wheelchair creaking doesn't disturb Surprisingly youthful <laughs> voice and demeanor, I must say. We, we, we have to come to that immediately, I should think, Joe Mars. That's been uh, the matter that all commentators and reviewers uh, have felt as an obligation to felt an obligation to comment upon that we have here a biography which is framed within a very crucial and basic fiction well as our grand as my grandparents would say about uncle ed uh, <laughs> if only he had taken his medicine he wouldn't have been imagining all those things yes of course that is the that is the big controversy uh, surrounding the book and I, I suppose what i find most painful about it is that it seems to me that what we had here was a most amazing opportunity. Ronald Reagan, uh, in the mid-1980s, actually, I guess the, the early 1980s, made a decision that he was going to allow uh, a pretty independent historian, someone of substantial intellectual reputation and credentials. Who did, in fact, win the Pulitzer Prize. Who, who did, in earlier biography of Theodore uh, Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the rise of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, would open the doors and allow an independent historian to come into the White House and follow him around, uh, follow him around uh, in the outside world, have access to his papers, not in the remote future, but as those papers, in a sense, were being developed, uh, have an opportunity to converse with him as policy decisions were being made and see how the people around him influenced him, reacted to him, uh, informed him, didn't inform him, and so forth. If, if memory serves me correctly, there were some early meetings along the way in which... Uh, you, uh, Edmund Morris, sat with other historians, uh, Arthur Schlesinger and, and others, uh, in what seemed, uh, in, seemed in retrospect, maybe even seemed at the time to be auditions or interviews uh, to see which, which great historian of our time would, uh, would get this opportunity. And then the opportunity was given to you, and, and you had what seems to have been absolutely unprecedented access for a historian, uh, for a researcher, for a scholar, to a president in the midst of his presidency. And what emerges after all these years from that access turns out to be something that doesn't seem to be history. You, you style it yourself a memoir, and you lard it thick with inventions, uh, 
with an invention of your own personality and inventions of your own early interactions with such Reagan. And an invention of a son who was a student at Berkeley when Reagan was governor of California. Governorship and the invention of a fellow student when you and Reagan uh, and he were all at Eureka College down in uh, the middle of Illinois. And that fellow grows up to be a... Uh, uh, a columnist who is uh... well, I can see your interv- your audience are going to, beginning to be confused at this point. I'm really... just trying to describe the fictional frame into which you put the real biography. Yes, but uh, to confuse Gavin with Eureka is 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 is, is well, not confused. Gavin. Let, let me put fun. it this way. Um, I'm sorry that you're pained by the the conceit. It is a conceit. It's a literary conceit, as old as Homer, the conceit of the storyteller telling a completely narrative story of a large character in development who, which rises to a triumphal conclusion, a story which is, in fact, absolutely true. The only fictional device, and it's a slight one, despite what you say about it being larded with fiction, is that the, uh, the biographer's mind is given flesh back in the early stages of Reagan's life. Um, I was present at Reagan's side for three and a half years, from late 1985 right through till he left the White House in January of 1989. And indeed, I was present at his side whenever I went to Los Angeles in the years following that, uh, right up until mm. the time that he announced that he had Alzheimer's disease in November of 1994. But I was not present at his side for the 70 years before I began to hang out around the White House. And uh, that was the fundamental disparity, disparity I had to take care of in my book, uh, to try and match the viewpoint of regular biography before I was there with the live viewpoint that I had in the White House. And I um, did, in fact, come to the White House as an independent historian, as you say, after I began to write the book, after he'd left the White House, I wrote an independent historical account in conventional biographical style and found in the space of two years or so that the prose was dying on the page and that the portrait of Ronald Reagan in uh, Mm -hmm. developing political personality was, 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 was dead, was sterile, because he lacked a spectator. And what I decided to do was to extend my biographical self back to the beginning of his life as all biographers do in, in one form or another, and just simply make myself a witness of his earlier performance. Now, let me make clear. Uh, I did this first only because it's obligatory. Everyone is talking mm. about the book first in those terms. I don't think this is the only issue we need to discuss tonight. I think, in fact, you've got some very interesting material on Reagan and some very interesting insights, possibly controversial. We'll see how uh, Joe Morris feels about some of your interpretation. So I didn't mean to... Uh, to uh, particularly harass you with this as we begin. Uh, I did misspeak myself before if I said that you place Gavin, your son, at Eureka. No, don't you place your friend from those days, Paul Ray, at Eureka? Yes, indeed. I want to... Who then goes on to be a well-known columnist, and that's an invention as well. Yes. I felt that Reagan, being a large personality, growing larger and larger as he proceeds through life, needed the counterpoint of an additional voice of commentary. Tell me this. Why, when you did... I understand that you had real contact with the real Reagan for a number of crucial years, mm. uh, and that wasn't the case uh, with regard to the other president that you have memorialized, namely Theodore Roosevelt. <clears throat> but couldn't essentially the same dilemma be encountered in doing a biography of anybody that you've not had uh, direct contact with? 
Is it the fact that for some years of his life you knew him, but for most of the years of his life you didn't, that specially creates a dilemma? That was part of the dilemma, but the real reason that I adopted this narrative technique grew directly out of Reagan's own personality. Mm. Reagan, although he grew into a statesman and a politician of, of, of huge substance, was nevertheless throughout his life a thespian. He had to be perceived in action, and that's why he required a spectator. Actors without audiences are nothing. And as long as I maintained an indivisible line between the narrator and the subject, I found that the technique worked beautifully. Well, we come then to a crucial point. They may or may not have told you as they were bringing you over to do this program, and you've done so many, I'm sure they all mm. blur together, that in real life I am a psychologist at a university here in Chicago. Yes, they do. And therefore, of course, uh, I think I might safely say that this is, among other things, a psychobiography. That is, you are searching for the key to the man's character and the interaction between that character and those special character-based skills and those special character-based vacuities on the one hand mm -hmm. and his response to the challenges of the presidential role on the other hand. Uh, I would like to go directly to that, that is, to your understanding of who Dutch Reagan really was right. before he disappeared from uh, cognitive competence, mm -hmm. uh, which is sadly the case at the moment. We'll proceed with all of that and with Joseph Morris and Edmund Morris as we continue to draw from the, I, I should say instantly, just as a matter of personal testimony, the utterly readable, almost unputdownable, if such a word there uh, be, new book, Dutch, a memoir of Ronald Reagan, just published by Random House. First, we pause for these words. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, the Dow kept a wild day. December corn futures trading volume today an 18 percent increase in car sales. We right. There's nothing greedy about knowing what your money's up to. Orient Center, Chicago's News and Talk, Max Armstrong, Radio 720. We give you the business. WGN, around the clock. If the temperature in Chicago seems hotter than normal this summer, it's not global warming. It's the Chicago Fire. Defending Major League Soccer World Champions. Burning up the competition. If you're a fire fanatic, CLTV has a show for you. Sports page on fire. Watch highlights, get game previews, and talk live one-on-one -on -one with the Chicago Fire. Sports page on fire. It's the hottest sports call-in show on television. Sports page on fire. Tuesday nights at 9, only on CLTV. Looks like we're in for a hot summer. VP Investment Relations. VP Audit and Acquisition. VP Corporate Strategy and Development. Perhaps someday, people will learn it's not what comes after the VP title, but what came before it. The new issue of Crane. Are you in it? Crane Chicago Business, where the who's who read what's what. Do you want to give your company unlimited exposure? Advertise in Crane's 2000 book of top business lists. It's the business linked Bible and the only business tool that over 242,000 Chicago decision makers use for industry information. Put your company's message next to the most prominent companies in town. Advertise in the hottest Crane's issue of the year, the 2000 book of top business lists. For more information or to advertise, call Crane Chicago Business at 312-649-5370.
Daily Plaza has become Pumpkin Plaza with pumpkin decorating, fortune tellers, farmer's market, and new this year, the Haunted Sideshow located next to the Picasso. An evil clown will guide you past a human volcano to see circus performers and a knife-throwing act gone terribly wrong. Pumpkin Plaza is just one of the many Chicagoween 1999 events taking place in parks, libraries, neighborhoods, and cultural institutions throughout the city. Old Navy and the Chicago Tribune are proud sponsors of Chicagoween. For details, call 312-744-3370. This week's reason to visit the Little Traveler in Geneva, an unparalleled collection of soaps from France, Italy, England, Ireland, and Switzerland. You've got to see the Little Traveler in Geneva. Helen, guess what? I chose a beautiful apartment at Maravilla, that fabulous new retirement community in Vernon Hills. I can't imagine you retiring. <laughs> me neither. You know me. I love being active. With all the lectures, concerts, and events Maravilla offers, I can spend my time doing things I like instead of things I have to do. Really? Maravilla is unique. Each beautiful apartment surrounds an indoor green space with tropical trees, waterfalls, pools, and an ideal climate year-round. They even have a world-class health club and spa. Great dining. And it's affordable. Yes, that's the best part. One monthly fee includes everything I'm looking for. You're right, Marvia does have everything. Except having you as my neighbor. Well, maybe that can be arranged. Give me their phone number. Discover the future of retirement living today. Maravia at Vernon Hills. Priority reservations are being taken now. Call toll-free 877-929-1000. That's 877-929-1000. We now return to Extension 720 from WGN Radio Chicago. This is Milton Rosenberg. And back to the confluence of Morris's. Edmund Morris, author of Dutch, a memoir of Ronald Reagan, and Joseph Morris, uh, who served in the Reagan administration in various capacities, uh, one of them as Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Liaison Services for the Department of Justice. Uh, Joe Morris is now President of the United Republican Fund of Illinois, and the senior partner, at least one of the three principals in the firm of Morris, Rathenau, and De La Rosa. Edmund Morris did, in fact, win the Pulitzer Prize some years ago for his biography of Theodore Roosevelt, to which you are returning. That turns out to have been only the first volume of a contemplated three. Is that right? Trilogy, yes. Yeah. But uh, we have in hand, of course, Dutch, a memoir of Ronald Reagan. Perhaps a, a brief and quick overview of how this all came about. You are, of course... As, uh, as attentive listeners will have recognized by now, not a Native American, indeed, not born on the shores of uh, on Lakeshore Drive, and not 87 years old. I figure you to be in your late 50s, is that? Yes, I'm 59. Right? Yeah. Um, and you're South African by, or rather Rhodesian, was it? Or well, I'm actually around? Kenyan by birth. Kenyan, rather. Yes. Went to university in South Africa. Yes. Spent a lot of time in London, essentially in the advertising industry. Came to this country how many years ago? I just spent four years in London. I came to this country in 1968. Mm -hmm. And as I was telling Joe before the program began, I hit New York City the same day that Columbia University blew up in uh, April of 1968. Mm -hmm. So it was a baptism of fire in the social sense. The whole country seemed to be blowing up in that great year, uh, which in retrospect was an extremely exciting year to be here. But I do remember loving the country the moment I arrived felt an instant identification with it, and I've considered myself American ever since. And you were a busy freelance writer for many years. You worked on that Roosevelt biography. It did win the Pulitzer and the American Book Award, which certainly elevated you to a very prominent position, and that had to do with your being looked over by the White House together with a number of others, as Joe was 
mentioning earlier. And finally, uh, I gather it was Deaver and Mrs. Reagan who pretty well made the decision that they wanted you to do this job of being the official biographer. Well, I wasn't really chosen in that sense. I had to make the pitch myself. Uh -huh. I could have indeed begun to write the book and gone to the White House in the capacity I eventually did go as early as 1981, the first year of his presidency. But I was not particularly interested in Reagan those days. Although I admired him and I had voted for him, like most immigrants, I'm a conservative. But um, I was not really attracted to him as a literary subject until the spring of 1985. And when I did find that attraction to be irresistible, I had to make the pitch myself and I wrote to Nancy, <laughs> well, may as well go to the top, <laughs> and uh, told her I wanted to do this. I'd like to come and go freely at the White House and interview the president regularly, follow him around. Then it wasn't their conception originally to set up the work in this fashion? No, it was not, um, certainly not Reagan's. Reagan was not remotely interested in being written about or not being written about. He was um, incurious about himself, and he was so secure about himself that he um, accepted my presence there as the most natural thing in the world. And yet that's a stunning fact, isn't it? He was so secure about himself that the presence of an independent historian day by day didn't bother him at all. Right. I remember going around publishers in New York after I'd gotten the uh, go-ahead to, to do this book. I went to publishers naturally shopping the book around, and with, almost without exception, they all said, my God, Ronald Reagan has got guts to bring in an independent writer and let him write what he wants to write. Would it be your judgment, Joe Morris, that most top-level American politicians, certainly presidents, but other important politicians, would not have uh, that ease and comfort based upon an essential absence of interest in themselves? It's ease and comfort with uh, a Snoopy biographer constantly on the scene. I, I, think, it's, I think it's almost unthinkable in any other case. It, it, it is a a unique characteristic of Ronald Reagan's personality. What's also fascinating is that other people are so secure with Ron other people who are close to Reagan, including Mrs. Reagan, mm. Michael Deaver, uh, Edwin Edwin Meese, and others were were so comfortable with the idea that they weren't spooked and and didn't bend over backwards to dissuade him from. Doing now, Edwin Morris, mm. as I've been reading your book, another one that has been much in my mind. I can well remember that it was rather a long time ago. We uh, discussed it at this very table with its author was Gary Wills's book, Reagan's America. Yes, splendid uh, book. You think it a splendid book. Mm -hmm. uh, for him, Reagan is, the two of you agree and you find a certain vacuousness in the man, but he finds nothing admirable in the man at all. He finds him, uh, and he finds him rather stupid, and uh, essentially the tool of others who are using his histrionic skills to manufacture the sort of presidency that big business needs. That isn't your view. I'm not aware of Gary Wills ever meeting Reagan. He may probably he did not shaken hands once or twice. But um, <clears throat> the difference between us is that, uh, of course, I was there all the time observing him at extremely close range. And I was able to observe the theater in action, the theater, the personality in action, and the charm and the charisma and also the humor. If I have any criticism of Gary's book, which I think to be an, a brilliant intellectual feat, it is that he does not comprehend Reagan's humor. Why is humor the key to the man? Humor is um, not key to the man, but it's certainly an essential part of his charisma and his, his political potency. Time and time again, Reagan would use humor to diffuse awkward situations, diplomatic situations, um, and his jokes were always so perfectly adapted to the situation. 
um, so perfectly tailored, so perfectly paced, that it was like watching a true virtuoso in action. I think we need two or three examples. Well, I'll give you one. <laughs> there was the Ottawa Conference of uh, 1981, the G7 conference, where Reagan for the first time was confronted by two waspish French intellectuals, uh, Pierre Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, and Francois Mitterrand, the new President of France. And at first, these the two... The Socialist President of the France. The Socialist President of France, who um, was so disconcerted by Reagan's apparent simplicis, uh, sim, uh, simplicity and hokiness that after the first uh, evening, he said to, he drew Trudeau aside, he said, what planet does this man live on? But Reagan seduced him later on by one of these jokes. He said, uh, Monsieur President, I know how you feel vis-a-vis -vis the emplacement of missiles in Europe. He said, you remind me of the man who thought he was a colonel of corn. You can imagine Mitterrand look at him with his eyes boggling. As Reagan proceeded, he said, uh, this man thought he was a colonel of call, and he had to go to a psychiatrist to be disabused of this notion. And it took many sessions before he finally was coached into the realization that he was normal. He was not a colonel of corn. He was discharged, and he walked across the parking lot to get into his car, sees a chicken, and runs screaming back into the psychiatrist's office. The psychiatrist said, I thought you knew you were not a colonel of corn. You've been cured. And the man said, yes, I know. But does the chicken know? And Mitterrand realized that he was making a parable about mm -hmm. Mitterrand's own colonel-like uh, susceptibility to the great chicken on the other side of, the, of East Germany, uh -huh. who was liable to peck him to pieces at any moment. And that joke seduced Mitterrand, who cried with laughter, to such an extent that uh, as the years went by, Mitterrand began to respect him more and more and more. And the most eloquent farewell speech to, to Reagan was uttered by Mitterrand in the White House in 1988. Margaret Thatcher was on this program twice. Uh, and maybe it's just a matter of her being a good politician and playing to an American audience and playing to someone she perceived possibly as a sympathetic conservative, uh, perceived or misperceived. But uh, one of the most frequent things she said, it's almost as if this punctuated much of her address, and much of our conversation was Ron Reagan stood so tall and was so important. Without him, the world would not have taken this turn for the better. It was always Ron Reagan, not Ronald Reagan, mm. not President Reagan, but Ron Reagan, my very, very good friend. Actually, there are a lot of nuances to do with Reagan's nicknames. Ronnie was the name used by people who thought they were intimate with him. And his two wives. And he would sign himself Ronnie when he wrote to them. Mm -hmm. We leave the wives out of consideration for a moment. But when he signed himself Ron, and when indeed he was called Ron, that was the nearest to an intimate relationship. Curiously, his youngest child um, calls, him calls himself Ron, Ron Reagan, doesn't he? It's quite true, yeah. Uh, Dutch, which is the name that I use in the book, is the Illinois Ronald Reagan. Yeah. He was Dutch up until the time he went to Hollywood in 1937. Signed himself Dutch, in fact wanted to be called Dutch Reagan when he became a film, a film actor. I had to be disabused of that name, so rather than have a completely synthetic name, he agreed to let them call him by Which his given name. him by his father, I think, on the very occasion of his birth, or yes. shortly thereafter. His father said he looks like a little fat Dutchman. Yeah. So he was Dutch from then on. Born in Tampico, wasn't it, mm -hmm. Illinois? Tampico, Illinois. Yeah. Is he a year younger or a year older than the other Edmund Morris? 
He's a year older. Yeah. I decided to make this contemporary some, well, practically is contemporary. The, the contemporary was born in Chicago in, 18, in 1912, and Reagan was born in Tampico in 1911. Wow. Well, I was playing with a question earlier, and let me just reinstate it now quickly. If you had to summarize, as they say, as they asked the Philel, if you had to give the essence of the law while standing on one leg, what would it be? If you had to give the essence of your understanding of Ronald Reagan while standing on one leg, what would, what would it be? I would say the essential ingredient of his character as far as he behaved throughout his life was that he was thespian. As I said earlier, he was an actor who understood the power of gesture, of theater, of atmosphere, of timing, of humor, and the deployment of charm. That was Reagan in action. But Reagan cerebrally, his core philosophy was that of a compulsive politician. Uh, he discovered himself as a politician in the November of 1928 as a freshman student at, the, at uh, Eureka College in Illinois. When he took part in a student strike and articulated the, um, the, the, the actual theme of the strike to the student body in a midnight speech standing on a stage, and the roar of applause that he got as a result of short speech, um, he described himself in the metaphor as heady wine. That was the moment he discovered, 17 years of age, that he was a platform orator and a politician in essence. But two things uh, come to mind when you consider the public career of Ronald Reagan. One is these great actor skills of his and his superb performance, a very heartening sort of performance, which may really have generated some American enthusiasm for America itself mm. once again. But the other thing that comes to mind, of course, is his very clear and strong conservative convictions and the way in which they were translated programmatically. Does that follow, would you say, uh, Joe Morris, from his character or from his intelligence or from the flow of the time itself? Well, it seems as if there, there, there must have been a third dimension of Ronald Reagan besides the skills, the thespian skills you've described, and the, the drive that emerged early in his, in his youth that other American politicians might characterize as fire in the belly, that is, the, that, that element inside him that projected him forward into public life. But there was another dimension of him, uh, that which, and it is, it is to that that Margaret Thatcher, among others, recurs again and again, and that is the politician of principle, the politician with a, a certain core of ideas or convictions of which he could never be disabused. But we must instantly take into account the fact that those principles were quite opposite some 30 or 35 years earlier. Well, they were not, he, was, he was a public liberal of considerable... They were not uneducated, were they? I mean, there, there, was, there was a remarkable transformation in his views. There was a time, you argue, you, you, I think you've, you've made some history, uh, in, in both senses of the term, by, by disclosing in your book that you are convinced there was a time when Ronald Reagan flirted with Marxian communism, mm -hmm. and yet he emerges a generation later as the antithetical politician. You the, say more the, than that. You the say, libertarian voice. You say that he spoke to Howard Fast asking how he could get into the Communist Party, and that uh, Fast, who was probably a member of the Communist Party, and was certainly sort of a communist novelist, uh, uh, some years ago, came back with the answer that well, they don't want you because they think you're a flake. Yes, that's almost the case. It's not quite true that he spoke to Howard Fast. Howard Fast is the one who told he me. He tells the story, the story then, I think. He's a self-avowed communist. There's no question that Howard Fast was 
for a long time, member of the Southern California Communist Party. Howard Fast told me um, several years ago that uh, Reagan, indeed, in 1938, was so far to the left that he idealistically wanted to join the Communist Party and spoke to many friends who were of that persuasion. Eddie Albert, the actor, being another one of them. Eddie Albert was a close friend, a close political friend, too. And Eddie Albert and his wife, Margot, who was extremely active in, in progressive politics, as it was then called in those days, disabused Reagan of the notion of joining the, the Communist Party because the, the word that they brought him from the leadership of the party was that he was not party material. Um, my interpretation of that is that the party realized that Reagan was too open and ingenuous and garrulous uh, to be trusted with secrets. He was not the furtive type. And um, fortunately, he was dissuaded. Uh, Margot Albert had to sit up with him uh, all night long. Uh, Eddie, I think, joined in in that session. Uh, to you have chatted with him about this matter, I, I guess. I chatted to Eddie. Margot is now dead. Yeah. And I spoke to a lot of the friends of the Alberts. Eddie was rather furtive about it, but he did confirm that there were conversations of this kind. He confirmed the basic facts of the story. And several other people I've spoken to from that time confirmed it um, in the sense that they didn't want to talk about it too much. But um, a professor of, at, at UCLA by the name of Joshua uh, Kessler has recently told me, and in fact he's written to the uh, Los Angeles Times to this effect, that not only did Margot Albert confess to him many times that she had managed to keep Ronnie out of the party, but that when Reagan was elected in 1980, Margot Albert said to Joshua Kessler, if only we'd let him stay, uh, we'd encouraged him to join the party in 1938, this would never have happened. How utterly fascinating. I had a conversation only two days ago with Julia Kessler, Yasha's wife. Extraordinary. They were old friends of mine when we were all graduate students together at it's the University of Michigan. And Julia, as you know, under a pen name, has uh, done a number of uh, sequels to the novels of Jane Austen. Good Lord, I had no idea. Didn't you know that? No, I did they've not been, know that. They've sold rather well. She's just finished, she's just finished Sanditon, not the first person to finish the unfinished uh, Jane Austen novel, but she's just done a new uh, uh, completion of Sanditon. Oh, she called me about it only two days ago. Well, what this suggests is that uh, Ronald Reagan is not the intellectual vacuum tube that some have implied or, or indeed insisted, that to the contrary, this is someone who's fairly alive to the plane of ideas and is wrestling with the big ideas that the 20th century wrestles with. Does it bother you, Joe, as a, a young conservative and a leading conservative, to discover that when Ronald Reagan was your age, he wanted to be a member of the Communist Party? No, I, I don't think it bothers me at all. Uh, I, it, it's the, the William Buckleys of the world, uh, the people who are who at the age of six <laughs> uh, have a worldview that's fully formed and never needs to be uh, uh, changed are, are, are very rare. Uh, most people go through a process of, of growth and education, self-education and, and uh, evaluation of circumstances around them. The point is that's precisely what Ronald Reagan did, that he is not the, it, it, he is not the vacuum tube that maybe a Gary Wills would... Uh, you know, yes, they, I, quite agree. I must tell you something just before we pause for commercials, but I must raise a question um, just going on with the, uh, with the basic issue of how Ronald Reagan had this change of intellectual and of political life. They've, I've been chained to this microphone for 25 years. Mm. And during the first year I was doing this program, there came on it 
uh, an eminent surgeon in Chicago who had just done his memoir, Dr. Loyal Davis, uh, who was the father-in-law, is uh, mm. actually the stepfather-in-law. I believe he's not, not really Nancy father, no. Nancy Reagan's Davis real father, but he was her stepfather, and very, very conservative man. Mm. And uh, there were those who told me at the time that this fellow, Loyal Davis, is the one operating partly through his daughter, but he's the source of all the uh, enthusiasm for conservatism and all of the strong, insistent conservatism. He is the man who's the key to the change in the mind of Ron and in the commitments of Ronald Reagan. I wonder what light you can shed on that. We return to Edmund Morris and to Joseph Morris right after these words. If I spend $750,000 on the dress... It's the John Williams Show. I think I'll wear it. You wouldn't fill it out. Afternoons at 12.35. I wouldn't buy someone else's dress at a thrift shop. Why would I pay $750,000 for one? I'll be honest with you, I don't understand this either. It's I... collectible. It's no different than buying a, a Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb's glove did things. Ty Cobb caught the ball and threw in the Well, bat. Marilyn Monroe did things. But the dress was just close to those things. John Williams. It's like if this glove could tell stories... It would. After the odds and frogs. Her dress could tell stories, too. But I still think that there is something Bobby's that done. is different. Done. Radio <laughs> All right, that'll be enough of that. <laughs> All right, I'm going to my room now. WGN. It's the season of savings at Dominic. To celebrate the season, we'll give you a 5% savings award each time you spend a total of $250 with your Fresh Values card now through December 5th. It's good on a future shopping trip of your choice through December 31st, and you can earn them over and over again. Once you earn them, you can use your 5% savings award to save on fresh meats from our meat department or delicious breads, cakes, and cookies from the Dominic's Bakery. You can even use your 5% savings award to decorate with beautiful flowers from our European floral market. In fact, in fact, your 5% savings award can be used for all your holiday entertainment needs, from centerpieces to gift baskets. If you start now, you could earn your first savings award just in time to save 5% on your biggest shopping trip of the year. So hurry in for the season of savings at Dominic. Exclusions apply. See store for details. One savings award redeemable per visit. At last, this is the big sale of the year. In Glenview, Allegretti Rug Company is going out of business, offering you Chicagoland's biggest inventory of Persians and Oriental rugs in every shape and size at prices that cannot be beat. 3x5s to 12x18s and bigger, round rugs and runners. You'll see Kashans, Tabriz, Hadiz, Kum, and Sadooks. The largest selection in Greater Chicago. Allegretti will make your drive worth the trip. If you've ever thought about owning a beautiful hand-knotted carpet, don't miss this opportunity at Allegretti's in Glenview, 1015 Waukegan Road, just south of Lake Avenue opposite Dominic Supermarket. Open 10 a.m. every day till 9 p.m. during the week, 6 p.m. on weekends. Bring your color swatches, good dimensions, and your spouse. Hurry in and save 60 to 70% at this huge going out of business sale in Glenview at 1015 Waukegan Road, opposite Dominic's. All stock must be cleared. Hurry in for the best selection. Allegretti Rug Company, 1015 Waukegan Road in Glenview. Autumn is an excellent time to brighten your home with the look of new wall decor. For more than 30 years, the frame makers have been serving the art conscious public with distinctive styling, imagination, and craftsmanship found nowhere else. Barbara Latzel and Norm Van Kennett, certified picture framers, and their staff invite you to visit their studios at 24 West Chicago Avenue in downtown Hinsdale. During the month of October, the frame makers will be involved in a very special project. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. 
and the Framemakers will be donating 10% of the gross amount of every sale to the Wellness House of Hinsdale, which offers free programs to encourage, educate, and emotionally support people with cancer, their families, and their friends. If you're planning to give artwork for the holidays and want magnificent custom framing, take it to the Framemakers now and help support the Wellness House. The Frame Makers are open daily from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Thursday evenings till 8.30, and are closed Wednesdays and Sundays. Phone 630-325-6585. The Frame Makers of Hinsdale, where framing is a work of art. From Radio 720 WGN, this is Extension 720. Here's your host and moderator, Milt Rosenberg. And we return to Joseph Morris, who was not quite almost elected to be uh, president of the Cook County Board last time around. He was the Republican candidate, of course. And to Edmund Morris, uh, whose newest book is Dutch, a memoir of Ronald Reagan. The publishers of this much-remarked volume uh, are Random House. I was asking about Loyal Davis, the stepfather-in-law of Ronald Reagan, uh, and the story that he was really the source of Ronald Reagan's conversion in the uh, conservative direction. Anything to that? Yes, Dr. Loyal Davis, the rock-ribbed, arch-conservative neurosurgeon, former president, I believe, of the American Medical Association. Um, yes, it's conventionally said that he was responsible for Reagan's swing to the right, but that's absolutely wrong. As Joseph was saying earlier, Reagan's um, mutation into a conservative was the fruit of a steady political self-education throughout the 1930s and early 1940s. When Reagan came out of World War II, he was still so idealistic that for at least six months, he was tracked by the FBI as a suspected communist. He affiliated himself with every liberal cause in, in, in the country uh, at a time when communist agitation in trades unions was becoming more and more of a problem. And it was only when he himself became enmeshed in the crafts union strikes in Hollywood in late 1945 and early 1946 as a member of the Screen Actors Guild that he saw for the first time the naked face of communist uh, sedition. Uh, and uh, round about the middle of 1946, after getting um, a, a direct threat to have his face rearranged with acid and having to pack a pistol under his shoulder for, uh, uh, for several months, uh, those, those twin shocks made him realize exactly what he was dealing with, and he lost his youthful idealism almost overnight. This is before he becomes president of the Screen Actors Guild, yes. isn't it? It was necessary training for the subsequent assumption of the presidency of the Guild, which he took over in the spring of 1947. Yeah. And his, uh, his disillusion with that kind of militant leftism is visible already in his first presidency, the presidency of the Screen Actors Guild. Yes, because he came to the presidency of the Guild as a militant anti-communist. Yeah. And uh, that was the first, first brick laid in the wall of his conservatism. Uh, he remained Democrat right up until the early 1960s, but um, his conservatism was quite apparent by the mid-1950s. What would you say shaped him intellectually? There must be some books one reads. There must be some sources of authoritative interpretation which have an influence upon you. Who, who would that have been, or what would that have been for Ronald Reagan? Well, at risk of making him sound like um, a middle bra, <laughs> he got a lot of his ideology from the Reader's Digest. Yes, you say that. Mm -hmm. And um, 
he read he read the Reader's Digest and memorized it month by month by month throughout the early 1940s, and became some, something of a joke amongst the men in his army unit as a result of his devotion to the Reader's Digest. But um, apart from that, Reagan was a pa- pretty passionate student of, of politics and foreign affairs, even as a young man. For example, in 1939, before the World War began, when he went on a showbiz junket to Washington, D.C. with his young fiancée, Jane Wyman, he, um, he, he happened to meet the editor of the Washington Post at a cocktail party and spent hours telling this guy all about the situation in Europe and the, the situation in particular in Finland. And the editor of the Post was so impressed by this young actor's knowledge of politics that he wrote about it in the paper the next hmm. day. Let me pan forward to the crucial years, the years of his presidency. Now, you've been reading uh, Edmund Morris's book, As Have I, Joe. I think you've probably completed it. I'm still uh, someplace in the first two-thirds, and I'm enjoying it a great deal. Uh, but... I ask you two questions. They're related. What do you perceive Edmund Morris's take, as they say in the modern language, on the presidential achievements to be? And what is your own take on that same question? The first question is is difficult in part because uh, only a small part of the book, in, in overall terms, is devoted to the presidency. By far, the greater part of Edmund Morris's True. book, Dutch, is yeah. is devoted to the youthful formation and the middle years of Ronald Reagan and. And only a, a thin slice of, for example, of some of the the great informative events of the of the Reagan years, uh, the Bork nomination fight uh, doesn't get a whole lot of attention. Uh, time is space is running out. Uh, very little attention is given to the the uh, event that, in in retrospect, seems uh, to have had a very powerful effect on minds behind the Iron Curtain when Ronald Reagan stood in Berlin, pointed at the wall, and said, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall." Um, that is given only kind of a, a, a short treatment in uh, in Edmund's. Interestingly, book. the Bitburg speech and it, the Bitburg occasion is given a much longer treatment, more attention. That's yeah. that, that's right. A, a, so it's 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 kind of frustrating to me on the one hand to hear the obvious affection that you have Edmund Morris for Ronald Reagan and the sympathy for his evolution uh, as well as for the the substance of much of his ideas on the one hand and yet in the book to find that uh, so little of your searchlight is turned on uh, the legacy the accomplishments and what went into the creation of those accomplishments as you as you sat there at his elbow it, it strikes me as interesting that in a way this parallels your work on Theodore Roosevelt for the the rise of Theodore Roosevelt, your your first great work of, of presidential biography, a very impressive, electrifying book, in a very real sense, leaves off at that moment when Theodore Roosevelt is being informed of the the death of William McKinley, and so it is a it's an intense study of the formation of Theodore Roosevelt, but not an intense study of his presidency. Similarly, if one comes to Dutch, looking for a history of the Reagan presidency, the time when you were there. That's precisely the, the time that's given the, the shortest attention. Uh, the greater part is, is your attempt to go back and unpack, chisel out the formation of Ronald Reagan, well, particularly in his Illinois. In country. the book that Joe Morris might someday do, as a veteran of the Reagan administration, what would you list as the merits and as the demerits of the Reagan years and of his leadership? The, the, the merits of his presidency and of his leadership as an American social and national leader 
are probably rooted in the fact that he had a very clear sense of the power of ideas and a, a devotion, a grasp, a commitment to, a grasp of and a commitment to a handful of key ideas that drove his national agenda. It was very simple, very, a very simple national agenda, not simplistic, but simple national agenda. Um, and, and the strength of his leadership was that he, he spent himself on those four or five or six great things. Uh, Which four or five or six? Re rebuilding national defense and staring down the evil empire. Uh, in a sense, part of that being his thespian training, going on the international stage, the global stage, and calling the evil empire by its name, insisting that the uh, Marxist legacy was on its way to the ash heap of history and being a, a, a great national leader, an international leader willing to say that, a statesman willing to say that publicly with the effect of giving great heart uh, to people behind the Iron Curtain. Second, a commitment to reducing the size of government measured as he saw it by the amount of taxes it consumed. Uh, he, he might not have been uh, entirely attentive to debates among economists as to how one properly measures the size of government, but he understood it to be what government aid in taxes. He was committed to tax rate reduction, and he achieved that. Third, he was convinced that the American era had not ended, that there was something about the spirit of the American people, the, the, the spirit of the American enterprise that was not spent, that had a lot of life in it and needed to be revived. Morning in America. Hard times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, the theme of his second election. The, the, the thespian in him might have put it as Morning in America, as, as, he, as the 1984 campaign yeah. uh, characterized it. But those kinds of core ideas were things from which he never deviated, and he focused his attention on them. If there was a weakness in his leadership, it was, in my opinion, his, his willingness to delegate virtually every other question hmm. to uh, people whom he perceived to be loyal lieutenants, and exercise very little day-to-day. -day. What about the accusation that we what find in his administration originating in him and uh, and uh, expressed through the actual achievements and failures of his administration, we find this being the basic flaw, an inattentiveness to or a uh, absence of um, of empathic interest in the situation of the disadvantaged. I, I'm not convinced that that was the case. And, and uh, you know, Edmund Morris sitting at his elbow may be able to tell us correctly, whether or not uh, the problems of the ordinary American in the street were things that Ronald Reagan spent time thinking about. I will tell you this, that he had great, such confidence in the power of ideas that he felt comfortable about delegating a great deal of authority to his subordinates because he felt that if he, if he held two key ideas, expressed them clearly, articulated them with passion and, and did it often enough, that he could then rely on people to understand how his mind worked, how his philosophy worked, and figure out how to apply it in the mundane business of government. It is no accident, I suspect, that of all the politicians who've, who've trod on the world stage in the latter part of the 20th century, there are really only two of them, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, to whom the attachment of the word ism, you know, who, to whose name the attachment of the word ism makes sense. The word Thatcherism mm -hmm. has some intellectual content. The word Reaganism has some intellectual content, and, and you can't two, say that of, of most politicians in the West. And in the two countries at issue, there remains very strong contempt for Thatcherism on the one hand and Reaganism on the other. Contempt from certain circles. Well, I, I, the engagement in both countries that you name have been remade by these two people. 
Let me say in defense of my book, although I don't want to sound defensive, that um, I think that I've given great an amount of space in the presidential years to just the subjects you mentioned, with the possible exception of his, um, of his economic policy, which, as you yourself said, <clears throat> often did not engage his fullest attention. But I tried to tell the story of the presidency in narrative terms, because that's the way Reagan moved. He moved narratively. In the first year, when he brought about his great tax reduction proposals and um, reduced income taxes by one-third and simultaneously pushed through Congress this massive increase in military spending, I detail more or less um, day by day how he brought about those two uh, doctrinal miracles. Um, and I give great space in the year 1983 perhaps the most fraught of all his presidency, to the confrontation with the evil empire, the enunciation of his moral detestation of communism, his enunciation of the strategic defense initiative, uh, his deployment of the Pershing missiles in Europe, his confrontation with the Soviet Union over the Korean Airlines shoot-down of October uh, 1983, plus the other manifold crises of that year, for example, the imbroglio in Lebanon and the invasion of Grenada. So the adventurous history of the Reagan presidency is told in great detail, but in narrative sequence. And I do not get into um, large abstract discussions because Reagan was himself not a person to think in abstract terms. He always thought in terms of his action and his rhetoric. Let's take a moment to hear the voice of Ronald Reagan, a touch of Reagan in the night, as it were. Uh, your mention of the Grenada action mm -hmm. uh, gives me my cue because we have this ready. Here's Ronald Reagan talking to his cabinet uh, a day or two after the Grenada action had been launched. Okay, 5.15 this morning, a joint force landed with two spots on Grenada. Uh, paratroopers in the South, Marines and other members of the North, secured both air force, the eight men of the park along the south tip of the island, and then the operation along the lines of Cuban, the buildings up further north. Uh, both air force were under our control. We have secured the school for the safety of the people. There is now firing and combat uh, going on. There have been casualties, they've been evacuated to the USS Guam. We don't believe that I'm going to see if we've got any update on reports here in the minute and other stuff. But it was our feeling in making this decision, and believe me, it wasn't easy, and certainly in the face of what had happened in the flood, to uh, order a thing of this kind. But first of all, was our consideration for our own people. And second was, once this urgent period comes to us, none of us believed that there was any way that the United States could say no to that without, in the eyes of the world, revealing that when the ships were down, uh, we, we backed away. And I don't know what credibility we would have in the Middle East or any place else uh, if, if we had done that. We believe we took the right action. We hope we'll be shortly out of it. If you know Ronald Reagan, you could tell from the way he was speaking that he was speaking without notes, he was speaking without a script. That was unscripted Ronald Reagan speaking. 
And yet there was a command of facts, a fluency about the situation, an ability to relate it to other circumstances. He, he, he recalls the political circumstances of the, of the Lebanon affair and yeah. so forth as he lays this out for people. That's a remarkable little bit of tape because I respectfully submit that it gives the lie to the anti-Reagan myth that this was an airhead who could only speak from cue cards and had no understanding of the substance of what his presidency was. But here we come to a certain dilemma about the book in hand, fascinating though it may be. There, uh, there are those who say that essentially you are, in fact, quote you as calling him an airhead and say that's part of your distress, uh, which you encounter as you work, as you get close to him and get close to the material, and that that's one of the reasons why you felt you had to relate to him as an actor rather than as a person, because he uh, was, quote, an airhead. Do, do you use those words? No, I do not. In fact, that... Uh, they, they've been attributed to you, leaked, haven't they? That leaked phrase caused untold damage to me. This is before the book was published. Yeah. A Washington claim that I had called Reagan an, an airhead. Uh, what I call him in the book is I say that on first acquaintance with him, I found the president to be an apparent airhead, and that I was, as the years went by, and as the book as a whole makes clear, was soon... Um, uh, I was soon convinced that I was entirely wrong. Reagan was anything but an airhead, certainly in terms of all the great um, questions of statesmanship that he had to deal with. In private, however, let's not sentimentalize him, Reagan could sometimes be astonishingly, embarrassingly ignorant. He would say things which were so banal and so obviously wrong that you'd feel the back of your head was falling off. Like yeah. uh, trees generating more radiation than anything else and so on? Yes, and the acid rain generated by all these trees was, was threatening the industrial northeast. And the brown stuff boiling up from the Pacific Coast Highway was healthy ozone. Uh, environmentally, he could be extremely kooky. And uh, the, one of the paradoxes I had to deal with in my book was that this man who was capable of such ignorance in private, such apparent airheadedness in private, could, at the flick of, um, of a television switch, step out onto the international stage and be quite magnificent and indeed world-changing. Uh, listening to his voice, as Joseph was quite correctly saying, listening to him briefing his cabinet after the Grenada uh, attack, uh, definitely that's the real man talking. The command of facts, the fluency, the absolute command, that is a commander-in-chief talking. And that's what I've tried to do as much as possible in my book, show his character in action. I wonder if one wouldn't find, examining any American president, if you had first-hand contact, as Edmund has had with Ronald Reagan, uh, that, they, that the stereotypes to which we've assimilated and organized their images are always not merely too shallow or too narrow, but in fact almost falsify and reverse the truth. I wonder if Lincoln, for example, was as paternal and as uh, avuncular and as depressive a figure as he is represented. It's sort of an attractive, though tragic, image, but I don't know that we've got any real evidence that's, that that's what the man was. I wonder if... Um, I'm sure that Calvin Coolidge was not as blank and as, uh, uh, as lethargic as others make him out to be. Was it Dorothy Parker? who said when told Calvin Coolidge is dead, who asked rather, how could, how they, can tell? Tell? Yeah. How could they tell? Yeah. These stereotypes do great violence, I imagine, to the complex human reality. 
and yeah, there's the, there's the wonderful Calvin Coolidge joke about, about the fellow who comes up to President Coolidge and says, you know, I have a I have a bet that I can get you to say three words. To which Coolidge replies, "You lose." Yes, <laughs> which is wonderful humor. That's right. We must pause. Another round of commercials coming. In a while, we certainly want to get to your telephone calls. We're opening the lines at this moment. The number, as ever, is five nine one seven two zero zero five nine one seventy two hundred. 312, if you're calling from some considerable distance, and if you're at an even greater distance and listening to us over the Internet uh, and want to reach us um, without putting through a call, you have, of course, available to you uh, the Internet itself, or rather email, our email address being extension720 at tribune.com, extension720 at tribune.com. If you're down in Grenada and listening to us and remembering the benefit of that invasion, if that's the way you see it, and would like to get through to us, uh, extension 720 at tribune.com or the old-fashioned way 591-7200 we return directly after these words here's what the old way to check your messages sounds like step one call in to see if you've got any faxes or voicemails i don't know if you've got a fax who do you think i am your secretary but you are my secretary whatever step two use your laptop to check your email if you can find a place to plug in, and you have the time to wait for it to boot up and log on. Oh, sure. I got nothing but time. Or get the new SkyTel Message Center instead. It's like remote control for all your messages. Whether it's an email, voicemail, fax, or a page, Message Center notifies you and lets you forward, read, reply, or save it for later. And you can do it all from your pager. But this is no ordinary pager. It has a mini keyboard, so you can initiate emails and pages right from your pager, too. Just call 1-800-SKY-4541 to get Message Center. That's 1-800-SKY-4541. Or go to Skytel.com for a demonstration. From Skytel, the first name in advanced messaging. Mom? Dad? I got great news. You finally got a job? You're moving out of the house. You're getting married. Um, no, no, yes! <gasps> marriage! They grow up so fast. Is it to that doctor? A senator? Actually, it's Ted. Ted? What oh. Ted? Doesn't ring a bell. The five-star dealer. He sold me my car, remember? What? But that was last Tuesday. You hardly know him, dear. Ma, what's to know? He's a five-star dealer. So? Ted says five-star's a whole new way to sell and service cars and trucks. Yeah? Look oh. at how he treated me. How? He answered all my questions. And he even called to make sure that I was happy with my new car. Smart man. Reminds me of your father when he was young. Hey. And not everyone can be a five-star dealer. Uh-huh. So the ones who make it really know their stuff. So how does Ted feel about this? Well, he doesn't know it yet. No? But he will. Oh, that's exactly how I got your father. I know. <laughs> True. Look for the five-star sign at your certified Chrysler, Plymouth, Jeep, or Dodge dealer. Five-star. It's better. We'll prove it. Have you been to Hannah's lately? Hannah's Home Accents in Antioch. Hannah's has many specialty stores under one roof, nearly an acre in size. In Hannah's Gift and Collectibles section, you'll find Boyd's, Homedy Kingdom, Charming Tales, Lang & Wise, Department 56, and Inesco. Speaking of Inesco, this Friday, stop into Hannah's for a toast to 2000, an Inesco Millennium event. Hannah's will host this top-secret unveiling featuring never-before-seen Precious Moments products, the announcement of substantial Precious Moments retirements, a chance to support breast cancer research, and much more. It's this Friday, the 29th, one day only, at Hannah's Home Accents. Remember, Hannah's Hobby Section features the largest model railroad selection in three counties. Hannah's is a showcase gallery for Thomas Kincaid, plus the works of Redland, Peterson, Hanks, and more. Hannah's has a huge make-a-memory department, and their craft and floral departments are incredible. Hannah's Home Accents is in downtown Antioch on Lake Street. 
seven miles west of the Tri-State. Have you been to Hannah's lately? Welcome back. I'm here with Ken, the manager for the new Pillsbury team. So what do you call yourselves, Ken? The Doughboys? No, Steve. We're hiring a team of employees for our new Pillsbury plant in Geneva, Illinois. Uh-huh. And we need team players, men and women who can adapt, work hard, communicate well, and have fun. Hey, where do I sign up? Join the Pillsbury team in Geneva, Illinois. Manufacturing jobs pay $13 an hour. Mechanics, $16.75. And electricians, $19.75. Call 800-767-8932. Or check us out at Pillsbury.com. When it's this, direct from Havana. Rick Pearson is here from the Tribune. Good morning, sir. The Bob Collins Show. It's amazing. You can pick up the phone in the hotel and call the United States like you're calling Naperville. And Rick just told me that it's about $5 a minute. And, and, and B, no credit cards, cash money. Cash money as you leave the hotel. What if you uh, don't have the cash? Uh, I assume you might become one of those re-educated sugar cane workers. <laughs> the Bob Collins Show. More from Havana tomorrow morning at 5. Radio 720 WGN. From Radio 720 WGN, this is Extension 720. Here's your host, Milt Rosenberg. The text and the basis for our conversation tonight is the biography of Ronald Reagan titled Dutch, a memoir of Ronald Reagan by Edmund Morris, who is, of course, one of our guests. The book, by the way, published by Random House. Our other guest is the unrelated other Morris, Joe Morris, an old friend of this program and a frequent guest here who served in the Reagan administration in a number of uh, uh, capacities, including that of Assistant Attorney General in charge of liaison services for the Department of Justice itself. Uh, you were saying, Joe, that we ought to put on the air the conversation we've just been having while we've been off the air. Uh, we've, we've raised a couple of very interesting questions here, and let me, let me put uh, a, a broad question to Edmund, Cousin Edmund. <laughs> <laughs> what was Ronald Reagan's attitude in private, as, as you observed it, toward his recent predecessors, uh, President Carter, President Ford, President Nixon? It was surprisingly scathing, surprising in the sense that Reagan was always such a genial person and tended to like and respect everybody he met, almost to a fault. But when he talked about his immediate predecessors, he could be more than scathing, he could be even savage. I was interested to discover the source of his perpetual dislike and mistrust of, of Richard Nixon uh, that it went back as early as 1952 when Nixon was running for um, the vice presidency. Reagan wrote then in a letter which survives, uh, he is less than honest and let us um, brace ourselves for the prospect of Richard Nixon in the White House because he is the unscrupulous tool of California real estate and oil interests. Surprisingly savage comment. Um, but to move to the later stage when Reagan himself was president, he said to me, regarding Lyndon B. Johnson that he considered him to have been a coward because LBJ confessed to Reagan one night after he left the White House that he never went to, to sleep as president without worrying that World War III might have broken out during his sleep. And Reagan said, how can he have been like that? A president is supposed to be confident that he can keep the world at peace. He should not have been afraid. He despised cowardice. Um, of Gerald Ford, he said with surprising hauteur, um, oh, I don't think he distinguished himself very much when he was here. And I pressed him on that, and I said, how do you mean he didn't distinguish himself, Mr. Preston? And Reagan said, well, you know, he was never elected. 
And I found that uh, Reagan really looked down on a president who had not received the final benediction of the American people. Uh, of Jimmy Carter, he said, he's the only president who ever left this house and became a nobody. And I think we were all agreeing uh, while we were off here a moment ago, that was a very ungenerous and a very incorrect uh, evaluation of Jimmy yeah. Carter. So it showed, uh, it showed that Reagan, behind all the geniality, was capable of naked aggression. These men were all competitors, or observations. Competitors, uh, competitors for the, um, uh, the historic status as president. And then that led us during this very busy hi hiatus off the air to wondering about his successor, the incumbent president. And, and uh, that, that led to the interesting question, can one imagine the question, boxers or briefs, that was put to Bill Clinton and seems bizarrely to have defined at least and which some Bill Clinton so easily accepted and happily answered. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's the question striking president. thing. The Could the question have been put to Ronald question. Reagan? And how, if it had been put to Ronald Reagan, what would he have done about the question? Well, I can imagine that if the question had been put to Ronald Reagan, what kind of underwear do you wear, Mr. President? He would have been completely bewildered. He would have stood there not knowing what to say because he would have been so taken aback at the uh, presumptuousness of the question. But then I thought about it even further, and I realized the question never would have been asked. Of course not. Because there was that dignity about Ronald yeah. Reagan that he did not... The very word that was in my mind. One might say that, at least for the foreseeable future, dignity left the White House with Ronald Reagan. Right. And there's something about Bill Clinton that invites those kind of questions. Yeah. I guess George Bush didn't totally lack dignity, but he didn't have the gravitas that one sensed in the public... Uh, performance of Ronald Reagan, no, and it will be a long time before we them together. Yeah, it will be a long time before we again feel that the president, that kid, even American kids can really think, gee, the president is the next thing to God. Yeah. Children used to think that, but they, I think, I, they cannot any longer. That leads me to a text of Edmund Morris's that I'd like to share with our readers. Do please. This comes earlier in in Reagan's development. Actually, the, you're, you're describing a point in his life when he was living in Des Moines. It follows soon after. Something you've done, Edmund Morris, in this book that I think is really very valuable. You've unearthed some early manuscripts mm. of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan as writer at yeah. college. They are interesting to read. And they are interesting yeah. texts, and they show an interesting touch of uh, 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 an interesting ability with language and a certain sense of identity. But you write the, the following passage. Let me, let me read this, and I'm going to ask you to comment on it. Paul, and you're referring here to Paul Ray was talking about a nurse who had been held up beneath Dutch's bedroom window in Des Moines. A warm Sunday night, the time about 11 o'clock, suddenly the sound of a man snarling something, and a young woman's voice, high and panicky, Take everything I've got, but let me go. Reagan leaps out of bed, seizes his latest acquisition, a 45 automatic unloaded, and in the glow of a street lamp outside sees one of the girls from Broadlawn's General Hospital with her hands in the air, the man menacing her is stooping to pick up her bag when a light baritone that carries well on the air rings out, Leave her alone or I'll shoot you right between the shoulders. Dutch modestly never mentioned this rescue until he was interviewed as president on the right to bear arms. He received a nostalgic letter of thanks from the former nurse, now living in retirement. She recalled that after scaring off her attacker, he had emerged calm and handsome in his robe and slippers and escorted her back to Broadlawn's. A slight story, but what interests me is that Dutch, comfortable as he was in the world of Grant Wood, felt equally at home in the more threatening one of Edward Hopper. A great story, a rich story, a story about the 
the dignity of a man, this, uh, the generosity, the courage, mm-hmm. the rapid response of a man. The thing that pains me, going back to the beginning of our conversation mm-hmm. tonight, was I'm not sure whether or not this really happened. You put it in the words of, of you, the, one of your fictional characters. One of your fictional characters. Well, you have Paul to simply Ray. look at the notes. The book is exhaustively documented. That story comes from a letter written to the president by Mabel Lohman King, who was the nurse in question. It comes from the president's own reminiscence mm-hmm. of the uh, incident and in interviews with me, and in a newspaper article that was published at the time. Uh, I think there's another source that I quote, but I can't remember. But every line of it, every word of dialogue, the atmosphere, the description, it's all authentic historical information. Um, Once again, we are shortly going to the telephones, and so if you want to join us, now is indeed the very moment when you should spring to action. 591-7200, the number 591-7200. Quickly to those commercials, but before that, a last question, uh, Edmund, directly. Uh, You say towards the end of the book that you, in fact, avoided much contact uh, or more contact than you might have had with the president in his uh, decline. Yes. He's obviously in serious decline. But you do report at least one such encounter, which is rather touching. Yes, I had a final interview with him a few days after he announced that uh, he had Alzheimer's. Yeah. And as soon as I went in there and began to talk with him and saw how far he had gone and how fast he had gone, because after completing that famous letter, we all remember, his decline was almost instant. It was like it was the final letting go. The letter is a final lucidity. And then uh, this rapid decline. Um, it was so distressing to me. Even though I describe it in detail in the book, I decided I would not see him again. A, because I would get nothing more out of him. And B, because I would become sentimental and protective. And it would fatally uh, affect the, the writing of the biography. So I said goodbye to him in my heart, and I've not seen him since. He still manages, I understand, to, or they manage to get him to an office most days. Is that right? I'm sorry to say he no longer goes to the office. That, there, he's beyond that phase, yes. too, then. Yeah. You know, he now is, is at home. And uh, I wouldn't like to go into too much detail about his present condition, because I think since he said goodbye to the American people, he's entitled to his Absolutely. medical privacy. Absolutely. Um, we pause uh, and then on to the phones. Uh, the lines are open and available to you if you want to join in this conversation, to pose a question, offer a thought or a recollection. Uh, do, by all means, ring us up quickly. 591-7200, the number. 591-7200 for a conversation with Edmund Morris and Joseph Morris, not brothers, not cousins. And we return directly after these words. For more than three decades, R.H. Love Galleries has exhibited and sold American art exclusively from the colonial period through the early 20th century. Specializing in paintings, R.H. Love Galleries provides an opportunity to view important art from America's rich cultural past. For example, names like Cassatt, Chase, Hassam, Robinson, and Twachtman are just a sample of the many Impressionist painters whose work is available for sale. R.H. Love Galleries also offers a diverse selection of works on paper in their prints and drawing rooms, as well as a variety of art books and exhibition catalogs in their bookstore. They hope a visit to R.H. Love Galleries will improve your knowledge and love of American art and inspire you to own one of these great works. Browse through the R.H. Love Galleries in the historic Nickerson Mansion downtown at the corner of Erie and Wabash. Monday through Saturday from 9 to 5, call 1-800-437-7568. Discover the heritage of American art at R.H. Love Galleries. Are you or do you know someone 65 or older and depressed? Would you like to participate in a medical research study? If so, call 
570-2547. Cerex and Dr. Lisa Rohn are currently looking for people 65 or older who've been feeling depressed and who are in general good health for an eight-week research study. Did you know that depression among senior citizens is a common disorder that often goes undetected? Symptoms would include loss of energy, inability to enjoy pleasurable activities, feelings of hopelessness, poor appetite, insomnia, or poor concentration. Qualified participants will receive all study visits, medicine, exam, lab tests, and evaluations required by the study at no cost. For more information about this depression research study for people 65 or older, call 1-847-570-2547. The number again is one 847 570-2547. Spend the weekend with the kids at the 17th Annual National Model and Hobby Show, October 30th and 31st. Children under 16 can build their own models at one of the make-and-take areas just for the cost of admission. Success. It's a strange thing. It can't be seen. It can't be weighed. It can neither be heard nor smelled. In fact, if it weren't for cranes, you might never know success existed at all. The new issue of Crane. Are you in it? Crane Chicago Business, where the who's who read what's what. Do you want to give your company unlimited exposure? Advertising Crane's 2000 book of top business lists. It's the business leads Bible and the only business tool that over 242,000 Chicago decision makers use for industry information. Put your company's message next to the most prominent companies in the city. Advertise on the hottest Crane's issue of the year, the 2000 book of top business lists. For more information or to advertise, call Crane Chicago Business at 312-649-5370. We now return to Extension 720 from WGN Radio Chicago. Now, here's Milton Rosenberg. And we go directly to the phones uh, after I quickly reintroduce our guest. Edmund Morris is, of course, the author of the new biography, Dutch, a memoir of Ronald Reagan. Random House, the publishers. Joseph Morris is a close reader of that very volume. He uh, uh, was... Uh, a well-placed young official in the Reagan administration in various important positions. He is these days one of the partners in the law firm Morris, Rathenau, and De La Rosa, as well as being president of the United Republican Fund of Illinois. Our phone number, 591-7200. One last question to you, Joe Morris. How much face-to-face -face contact did you have with Ronald Reagan? Roughly once a month and almost invariably in... Uh... One, one another kind of public setting that is a, yeah. a, a meeting, a cabinet room meeting, or a, a, a large, a large gathering. My uh, most intense face-to-face -face encounter with Ronald Reagan actually came across a table of canapes, of, of hors d'oeuvres, and 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 uh, petit fours of, of sweets. Mm -hmm. uh, it had been a reception at which uh, Vladimir Horowitz was given the, uh, I, I believe, the Medal of Freedom mm -hmm. in a delayed ceremony because he was out of the country when the broader ceremony for mm -hmm. that crop of Medal of uh, Freedom recipients had been awarded. So there was a special reception just for Vladimir Horowitz and his wife, Wanda Toscanini, in the Red Room at the White House. I walked over to the windows uh, to, to stop and look at this gathering of 30, 40 great people. I remember having uh, spent uh, some time on a love seat chatting with Kitty Carlisle Hart and uh, other wonderful Americans. At a certain moment, Mrs. Reagan who had been standing in the center of the room with her husband, gave her regrets, said she had some important engagement, she had to leave. She left the room, 
the president standing in the center of the room counted down. It almost seemed five, four, three, two, one, zero, and then suddenly turned and walked straight at me where I stood by the windows. I thought, why is the president of the United States coming to me? But he wasn't coming to me. He was coming to the tray of little finger sandwiches and treats <laughs> on the table right in front of me. He stopped, you know, no more than two feet away from me, started plucking up the little sandwiches, popping them into his mouth about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh-huh. grinned at me, winked, and said, now don't tell Nancy. <laughs> he was just like a little boy in those respects. Uh-huh. Sneaking chocolate chip cookies. And... On to the phones. 591-7200, you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Tonight from Oregon, Illinois, 15 miles north of Dixon, where the Rock River still flows from. Yes, sir. <laughs> I finished your book on Sunday. Mr. Morris enjoyed it immensely. I was wondering about his relationship with his children. You talk a little bit about talking with Ron, um, and I've seen some stuff about Patty with the anti-nuclear movement, and I'm curious if his relationship with his children was emblematic of his relationships with everyone else, or even more so. Um Yes, his relationship with his children was, in fact, much like his relationship with the American people. He treated them with avuncular geniality, uh, welcomed them and seemed to be with them when he was with them. But as soon as they left him, it was as though they didn't exist. There is that horrible scene. Whose graduation is it? Ron Reagan's? Michael's. Michael Michael Reagan's. High school. High school graduation, and he comes up to him and introduces himself, not knowing his own son. Yes, Michael had to say to him, Dad, it's me, it's me, your son, Michael. Um, Both uh, Ron and Patty have come out recently, just in recent weeks, in support of what I've written in the book. I don't know if you saw young Ron on 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago, but it was in immensely poignant television, where he said, as the other children have said, that um, although he loved his father deeply, he felt starved for him all his life. His father seemed to have larger agendas and larger things to, to deal with and in fact never seemed to have any consciousness of the individual identities of his children. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you. And we will go quickly to another on 591-7200. Good evening. Good evening. My question for uh, the author is, as as time goes by, do you foresee uh, President Reagan's legacy growing in stature? Will people view him as a greater president? Obviously, during the, the, uh, the height of his popularity, there was talk of putting his, you know, Sculpture up on Mount Rushmore. Is time going to deal kindly with Ronald Reagan uh, as a president, or as time goes by, are people going to think less and less of him and his accomplishments? Well, I think the, that his stature is already considerable in the sense that um, uh, 10 years after his departure from the White House, Ronald Reagan is pretty universally perceived now as a political giant. Although there still is a substantial minority of the American people that have negative views about him, nobody questions his size and his importance and the fact that he did substantially alter the, uh, the geography of the world. Um, I was once asked if um, there is any monument that he's left behind, and I, my answer to that is his monument is what we don't see anymore. Where's the Soviet Union? Where's the Berlin Wall? Where's mutually assured destruction? Where is the welfare subpopulation? Where is national malaise? Where's double-digit inflation? And so on and so on and so on. The things that we do not see are the testament to his presence. Well, except that a lot of the rhetoric of the Cold War, particularly as regards strategic issues, is now being revived by Republicans. Certainly the revival of the Strategic Defense Initiative uh, and or um, is is just that. It is a revival, and it is, to my mind, though I tend to favor 
a good deal that uh, Reagan achieved. It is, to my mind, a very improper revival, uh, and the Republicans are making hay out of it, but uh, but mistakenly, I would say. the uh, If it ever worked, and there's no real reason to think that it ever will, uh, the claims by the military to the contrary notwithstanding, they've missed a thousand times for every one hit mm. they've made when they do test firings of uh, these kinds of missile-seeking incoming missiles up in the stratosphere or beyond the stratosphere, but even so, there are many other ways to deliver nuclear missiles, to deliver nuclear bombs, nuclear warheads, other than on ICBMs. You can fire them from submarines just offshore. You can literally carry them in, in uh, suitcases. Uh, then, and there are other modes of warfare which are, can be just as devastating, and everybody knows this. Uh, and uh, it's cheap politics on the part of the present congressional Republicans to, uh, to pursue uh, SAT, uh, SDI after all these years, I think. And the unpleasant um, secret of the SDI is that, as the Russians used to quite justifiably say, with a few turns of a screwdriver, this notion of space-based defense could turn into space-based aggression. Of course. Of course. It is destabilizing. It is intrinsically the militarization de- destabilizing as it was when, even though it may have helped bring the Soviet Union down. That's the other. You, you sort of buy that as part of, uh, uh, as part of the, uh, the course of modern history. Everybody buys that that uh, by, threat, by putting in uh, the advanced Pershings and cruises mm-hmm. and by threatening SDI, we forced uh, Gorbachev into either building it and wrecking the Soviet Union economically or granting that the Soviet Union was in bad economic shape and thus putting in Glasnost and Perestroika, and that was the beginning of the end because of all the internal tensions. I submit, Joe Morris and Edmund Morris, that that is too simple an explanation for the history of the end of the Cold War. There's something uh, in Ronald Reagan's thought that's being sold short here, and it is this. The, the, the threat that SDI is aimed at is not the threat of the independent acting terrorist. It is the threat of, of sure. not just state-sponsored terrorism, but state-sponsored aggression. Ronald Reagan was a critic of the idea of mutual assured destruction. He saw that the flaw in the doctrine of mutual assured destruction wasn't technical, it wasn't strategic, it was moral. His criticism of it was a moral criticism, that it is wrong to hold one's own people hostage to another power's intentions. He saw in the search for a strategic defense, whatever the technology might be, the opportunity to deny to any aggressor the use of the skies as a a source of terrorizing a people. And he so believed that as a moral proposition I think Edmund Morris will back me up on this, that he envisioned, he actually believed the prospect of identifying a workable strategic defense technology and making it available to the world, making it available to other countries as well. But when it comes to the history of the Cold War, one must remember, and I'm sorry to be so insistent about this and to intrude it when it isn't really what we're discussing tonight, but one must remember that uh, the notion of mutual assured destruction is more an American invention than it was an early Soviet invention. That our strategic theorist, Eindhoven, uh, Bernard Brody, uh, and uh, even the one who was uh, at the University of Chicago for some time. Morton Kaplan. Uh, not Morton Kaplan, I'm blocking now. You know, the great... Uh, oh, Herman Kahn. Uh, no, Herman Kahn was never here. He was at Rand Corporation. All of those guys, they laid out the whole vision... Oh, Wolfstetter, Albert Wolfstetter. Albert Wolfstetter, right. exactly. They laid out the vision of a mutual assured destruction as a way to maintain international stability because, and under the conditions in which we were militarily, in terms of conventional force, much weaker 
than the Soviet Union, and only our nuclear capabilities were considered to be an effective deterrent against even conventional attack. Let's let's debate the merits of of strategic defense another, another time. The point right. the point that I was trying to make here tonight was that that Reagan saw this as a moral issue, and you asked you asked me a, f a few minutes ago about my own interactions with Ronald Reagan. One of the most powerful and decisive for me involved the air traffic control of the strike of 1981. Mm -hmm. In fact, that was at the very beginning of my service. As I told Edmund Morris earlier this evening, I was the general counsel of the civil service system. When Ronald Reagan fired 12,000 air traffic controllers... Quite early in his... Very early, in August of 1981. Yeah. It, was, it was the responsibility of my staff and me at the Office of Personnel Management to defend those actions in countless, thousands, literally thousands, of administrative proceedings before the Merit Systems Protection Board. I sat in the cabinet room the, the day that a debate was held with Drew Lewis there and... Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Helms, the uh, uh, Lynn Helms, the director of the federal, the administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration, then Attorney General uh, uh, French Smith and others, while the question of of how the United States government should respond to the Patco strike was debated, I saw James Baker, among others, make an argument that the P Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization had been one of only two unions that had supported Ronald Reagan in the 1980 election campaign and therefore deserved special treatment. And I saw Mr. Reagan listen to a debate that raged for the better part of an hour, maybe even a little more than an hour, with a little bit of law and a lot of politics in that debate coming at him in several directions. And that debate ended, and he really did say, he really did say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, turned to the Attorney General and said, now, is it true that there is a law that prohibits people from striking? The Attorney General said, yes. He turned to the Director of the Civil Service, Donald Devine, and said, and is it true that when people become federal employees, they actually sign an oath that they won't strike? Yes, came the answer. And Ronald Reagan said, and I quote, well, doesn't an oath mean anything anymore? End quote. And made the decision, a decision that changed the nature of the economy, changed the nature of labor relations, and as Edmund Morris documents, changed the way in which the Soviet Union perceived the moral stature of the man. Mm -hmm. Yes, I couldn't endorse that more. In fact, it was a photograph of the leader of the union being taken to jail in chains as a result of the president's decision that spoke more to the, to the Kremlin in 1981 than all our military build-up. This was a leader, a president, who was quite capable of transcending his own background as a union leader on a simple moral point of law. Gentlemen, I don't know how to break the news here. We have to stop for some commercials. And then back to the phones, 5917200, the number. Also, there are some emails that we want, of which we will read one or two at least. 5917200 or extension 720 at tribune.com. We return after this. When you buy a new car, from a new car store, you get a great deal, and a great deal more. History may have been your least favorite class in high school, but it's one of the most important considerations in buying a used car. Because the history of a used car can alert you to possible problems you may have down the road and enable you to avoid them. That's why you should buy your next used car from a new car dealer. One of his specialties is locally owned trade-ins with a trackable service history. In many cases, you'll be able to access the service records on the car because it was originally bought and serviced at his dealership. Remember, if you don't know the history of your used car, your used car may be history before you know it. When you buy a new car from a new car store, you get a great deal and a great deal more. 
Halloween is right around the corner. And if you haven't already picked out your pumpkin or chosen your costume, stop by Dominic's. They're your spooktacular savings headquarters for all your party needs with a great selection of candy, decorations, and more. Also, this week, take home two 24-packs of Pepsi and other selected varieties for only $9 with your Fresh Values card limit four. Or fresh USDA Grade A Purdue whole chicken fryers for only $0.68 cents a pound. And this week is a great time to stock up and save during our $0.10 cents sale. Choose from lots of the freshest produce in season and an array of other value-packed items. Remember to celebrate the season with your kids by taking them to see three rings of fun and excitement at Ringling Brothers in Barnum & Bailey's The Greatest Show on Earth. Playing at All-State Arena November 3rd through the 14th and United Center November 16th through the 28th. You can receive up to half off on selected children's admission tickets when you purchase them at any Dominic's Ticketmaster Ticket Centers. Dominic! Hey, Reeves. Boss, I got the employee survey results you asked for. Oh, good. Which do they prefer, paper or plastic? No, I mean why they like working for Walla Walla. What'd they say? Well, the good news is everybody likes it here. I knew it. I'll bet my fajita Friday's idea did it. Uh, actually, a lot of people mentioned the big company health benefits we get with Administaff. And right behind that, I bet, was my innovative open pet policy, right? No, but they really like the 401k and disability plan we get with Administaff. Okay, how about line dancing in the break room? How's that going over? Let's, oh, here it is. Uh-huh. Oh, wait, they crossed that out and put in the training programs offered by Administaff. Oh, well, surely the hallway horseshoe pit is a winner. Ah, uh, not since Millie St. Bernard had that little accident. Honky, are you saying that people like it here because of Administaff's perks, not mine? Uh, basically, yes. Well... I guess we can all just forget about Twister Tuesdays, then. Keep your top employees by keeping them happy with innovative benefits from Administaff. Call 1-800-465-3800. Administaff, we take care of your people so you can take care of your business. It's Steve and Johnny, Life After Dark. Tonight, we kick off Halloween week with television's horrible movie host, Sven Gulli. No, actually, he's from Chicago. We'll talk some really bad horror movies, uh, have some movie trivia, and hear some wacky Sven song parodies. Steve King and Johnny Putman. Chicago's number one all-night show, weeknights at 11.15 on Chicago's News and Talk, Radio 720 WGN. We now return to Extension 720 from WGN Radio Chicago. This is Milton Rosenberg. And directly back to your calls to Edmund Morris and Joseph Morris in just a moment. But first, at least one email. And I can't read all of it, but I'll read at least the first part of it. Uh, I have a couple of questions for your guest. Well, I'm afraid this caller, uh, this emailer from Champaign, Illinois, only gets one. And this first one is, what is Edmund Morris's reaction to all the media criticism of his book, particularly George Will's description of it as, quote, weird? Um, <laughs> George Will, as I've um, discreetly pointed out from time to time, is the frequent lunchtime companion of Nancy Reagan. Um, I did answer George Well, although I don't on the whole believe in answering criticism. He did accuse me in print of fabricating several incidents wherein he is demonstrably wrong, and I just simply replied with a letter to the Washington Post detailing exactly why the incidents I recounted in the book are authentic to the last degree, and we haven't heard from him since. But I'm not at all um, disturbed by the criticism because I knew from the moment that I started this book and wrote it in this highly original fashion, it is a revolutionary biographical notion to use this narrator, that it was going to be um, uh, cause a great fuss and bother when I published it. But I put my reputation on the honesty of the portrait, the documentation that supports everything I tell, and I think that the imaginative device whereby the book is told is something that people will get used to very quickly. That's certainly the impression I get from readers. 
They all say they don't quite know what the fuss is about. They find the device entirely comprehensible, and they find that the story itself, which is an authentic story, sweeps them along. We go back to the phones. 591-7200. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening, and thanks for, as usual, terrific program. Um, Edmund Morris, I'd like to ask you, um, <clears throat> I was growing up during the 1980s, and, and in hearing about it now, um, you, you get the perception, and I'd like to see if you would confirm this, that, that the popular media or you know, the day-to-day -day press, um, <clears throat> the Reagan was very popular with the, with the country, um, they seemed to hold him in some contempt, and that, that showed through in their writing, in that they, they did not, he was not favorably received in the press during his years. Um, I, I'd like you to comment on that, but I'm sure in doing your research you were, you know, you went back through some of the um, some some of the writings that were were taking place uh, at the time, and yes. did, did he was he um, poorly received or harshly treated in the popular press? And if so, given I think what we can say, how success, you know, in retrospect, how successful his presidency was, and what a great man he was, to what do you attribute that? Well, the, he, he was received in the press um, in varying uh, ways. Uh, at first, in 1981 and 82, when the re recession was at its height and the impact of his tax uh, reductions were not yet clear, and when his confrontation with the Soviet Union seemed to be so frightening, there was a pretty uh, vehement critical consensus among the press that he was a dangerous man who represented the hard right of American political philosophy, and naturally on the East Coast, that was um, something that dismayed many intellectuals. But as the Reagan presidency matured and his successes became apparent, around about um, 1985, the time of his summit with Mikhail Gorbachev, when the success of his Soviet policy was, was so unmistakable, uh, respect began to generate amongst the press to the point that on July 4th, 1986, when Reagan presided over the bicentennial of the Statue of Liberty at this huge fireworks ceremony in, in um, New York Harbor, he was then at the zenith of his power and popularity and prestige, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And you would be astonished at how almost universally favorable the press was at that point in history. Newsweek was describing him as a great man Time magazine was describing him as an irresistible political force. But it all fell to pieces again that fall after the Reykjavik summit and the loss of the Senate and the House elections in the, in the uh, fall elections and then the great catastrophe of Iran-Contra. So his negative press built up again in 1987 and um, a sweeping consensus in his favor only began to reassemble itself in the very last year of his presidency. Now, 10 years later, as I said earlier, there seems to be a general impression, a general conviction that Ronald Reagan was a giant. If I may have one follow-up, it's interesting that you point to Reykjavik, because I've heard you speak previously about, about that summit where, as, as you just stated, the, the press seemed to have viewed it as a, as a dismal failure on his part, um, yet I believe you said that this was he was superb there and really was... Uh, be really acting as an ideal president would, and if, if you could just expand on that, I, I would appreciate it, and thank you very much. We thank you, sir, for the call. 
Yes, um, and thank you for, for the question too. Um, he was not an ideal president throughout most of that um, summit. As I detail on, uh, on, on the Saturday of the two-day summit, he was frighteningly out to lunch. Um, he was so spaced out. I'm sorry, we've been invaded from outer space. He was so spaced out the first day that Gorbachev himself was disconcerted and didn't know what to do, how to handle him. But Reagan came back on the Sunday pulling together all his faculties when he sensed that he was in danger, and he indeed did salvage the summit in such spectacular fashion on the Sunday afternoon that Gorbachev himself said afterwards that this is the beginning of the end of the Cold War. For the first time, the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union have discussed the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Did he know it was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union as well? Reagan? Uh, well, I was thinking of Gorbachev, as a matter of fact. Gorbachev is one of these transitional figures in history. There's no question he's a great man, but like all transitional figures, he has become despised in his own time, and in his own heart, I don't think he understands quite the miracle that he brought about. He's still asking himself, what was that? <laughs> Very much so. He still thinks of himself as the president of the Soviet Union. Uh, well, he ran again the last time they had a presidential election. He got 1% of the vote. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I met him shortly before that election campaign, and he was quite convinced that he would prevail. Was he said, all the young people in Russia, he said, wherever I go, they hang off the rafters. The young people are with me. And he got 1% of the vote. It's, it's a good thing for you, Joe, that you lost your one big public election. <laughs> if you were elected and then you lost another election, you might never be able to give up the, the illusion or delusion that uh, your time is coming around again. Everywhere I go, I, I, I find young people hanging off the rafters, <laughs> reminding me of a, those half million votes. We have to hang off these commercials or hang on these commercials, or at any rate, get them out of the way, and then we'll be back for more calls. The number, 591-7200. If you've been trying to reach us, we've now got a few lines available again, so try again, and uh, you may get through. Let's talk about a whole new world of comfort and freedom in retirement living that's coming to the Barrington area. Lake Barrington Woods, a parkside community, will set a new standard for your freedom, comfort, and security. First off, Lake Barrington Woods is a rental community. That means you control your own assets, managing them as you see best. Lake Barrington Woods will be completed in the summer of 2000 with a variety of spacious one- and two-bedroom apartment styles and assisted living should you need it. It will also include the finest in dining, a fitness center, art studio, indoor pool, and underground parking. Do this. Call Lake Barrington Woods right now at 1-888-223-9663. That's 1-888-223-9663 for information about this lovely new addition to Barrington. Lake Barrington Woods, a retirement community you'll be proud to call home. For more information, call 1-888-223-9663.
For over 150 years, you've known us as People's Gas and North Shore Gas. Now we're combining our long history of safety and reliability with new services to meet your energy needs. People's Energy, energy for you. From Radio 720 WGN, this is Extension 720. Here's your host and moderator, Milt Rosenberg. And quickly back to the phones on 591-7200, You are on the air. Good evening. Are you talking to me? Yes, ma'am. Oh, um, I've been sitting here uh, listening with much interest. I am reading the book. I just started it. I find it extremely interesting. I still am trying to get used to the, you know, the two characters that come in. You're, you're trying to get used to to. to Power, I think it's an interesting to paraphrase uh, Longfellow, you're trying to get used to the bio with a strange device. Yes, but I think yeah. I'm going to like it. I think it's going to work. I think it's going to be interesting. It's eminently engrossing. Um, I am calling because I feel that Ronald Reagan was one of our very best presidents. He was so courageous, and he knew where he was going, and he was comfortable in his own skin. I mean, he did not waffle like some others. Mm-hmm. And my son worked at the White House as a very young man during his um, presidency, and I went out there several times. And my son and I went out oh, two weeks ago. So I find this interesting just being in Washington after so many years. And I was shocked with all the barricades around the White House. And my son said to me when Ronald Reagan was in, they wanted to barricade the White House. And he said, you will not. It's a, House of the People, and it, I will not have barricades put up. That's interesting. And then he said that George Bush came in, and following Reagan, he could not, uh, you know, be wimpy. Maybe he would feel the same way. But he said the minute Bill Clinton came in, all the barricades went up. Well, the barricades first went up when Lyndon Johnson was there. Well, not to the extent. The, the anti-Vietnam War protest was raging. I was shocked when I went there. Two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. You're it, right. It looks like an armored camp these it days. It certainly does, which is a sad commentary. Well, but I'm finding your program very interesting. We're glad uh, that you you yes, are still finding it, ma'am. Thank you for the call. Okay. Bye. Um, there is the question of what we've been talking about the heritage and about the memory of Ronald Reagan, about whether whether that reputation will last and how it will last. Haunting our conversation, we made only one brief reference to it. Is the question of the current president? and uh, what he leaves behind him and how we will think of him in future years. It's telling that, that there is no biographer of Bill Clinton who, be, who had the kind of access and the kind of role that Edmund Morris had with Ronald Reagan. It is impossible to imagine Ronald Reagan having a tryst in the <coughs> side room of the Oval Office with Edmund Morris sitting there, pad in hand, Edmund Morris nodding along as I as I say that. It's, but it's, it's also true that Ronald Reagan was the sort of person who wouldn't take off his jacket yes. in, the, in the Oval Office because he would speak of the sense of majesty and dignity of the place that he felt, and he really meant that. He, he, it wasn't artifice. He meant it. Could you describe to us and, and to Milt's listeners what life was like for you? I mean, what you actually did, how you sat against the wall or you sat at the side of the desk day by day and observed how you how you did your role for that matter added to that question uh, uh, how much time were you there how often were you there i was there as much as i wanted to be 
uh, they left me come in uh, more or less, well, indeed, quite freely. Gave you a blue pass and you just came and went as you wished? I had an interesting technical <clears throat> status called waiting for a pass. It was a legal uh, trick whereby I could have this temporary pass and just literally come in and out and in and out and in and out as often as I liked um, without going through complex security. Um, for example, sometimes at 10 to 9 in the evening, I live quite close by the White House, so I'd say to my wife, you know, he's addressing the American people in a few minutes. I think I'm going to buzz down there. And I would rush down, park my car outside the White House and zip through the gates and rush into the Oval Office, and there he would be getting ready to speak. So the, the freedom was intoxicating. And um, Which is not to say that I hung around but all way, the it's time. It's important for listeners to understand that, that there are only a handful of people with that kind of access, mm-hmm. maybe four, five, people in the entire United States government who had the access you had. Yes, for the first year or so, I kept pinching myself. I kept saying to myself, is this me here? Is this him? But you know, it was a quintessentially American feeling that I, as as an immigrant, as an ordinary citizen, could penetrate to the very heart of power and somehow feel natural there, feel natural with him, that he should feel natural with me. This could happen nowhere else on Earth. It was one of the things that... um, Only in America. Only in America. The cliché still applies. Uh, the trust that was, was given to me was something magical and something I'll always be grateful for. Another quick call. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, thank you. Uh, as another veteran of the uh, Reagan administration, I'm also concerned about the Reagan legacy and how it's portrayed. And, well, what's, uh, what's your veteran status? Well, I was a very minor official of the Justice Department uh, mm-hmm. between 1983 and 1986, and he had the... Uh, honor of meeting uh, President Reagan on several occasions, uh, briefly. But uh, to uh, Mr. Edmund Morris, as a takeoff from your last comment, um, some Midwesterners have expressed, uh, as in uh, Hugh Seide's letter to the Wall Street Journal, uh, perhaps your more condescending approach towards the Midwestern ethos or the Midwestern intellect. And how would you react to that? I would add this additional twist. As a, a product of the British Empire, come here a little later in life, uh, your interpretation of the background of an Irish-American. I never thought of him as an Irish-American, frankly. I thought of him as a quintessential Midwestern, and I would politely dispute your um, imputation that I um, looked disparagingly upon his West- Midwesternness. In fact, the detail I go into to describe his life in Des Moines, and indeed the detail I go into to describe how firmly rooted he was in the cornfields of central Illinois, um, I regard as, uh, I think, it comes over as being reverential, and um, indeed, I believe that rootedness to be in the source of his strength. Um, uh, well, one certainly point, in the course of yes, the book. Yes, uh, but in the, uh, Reagan's own autobiography, interestingly, he makes a great point of saying that as a young, uh, as a young boy, uh, he and his brother Neil were often taunted as being the only uh, Irish boys in class, and he had some sense that he carried some of that background. So you're saying that was not a, that anecdote is uh, not factually rooted, or uh, it's a completely unimportant feature to his character or background? Yes, I think it's completely unimportant. His Irishness um, was 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 a matter of perhaps, if you want to call this Irish, a love of of raconteurism, of jokes, of. Uh, but I never found him particularly Irish. He was not particularly interested in Ireland. Um, when he went back there to Ballyporeen to explore his ancestry, they gave him these complicated genealogies. He really wasn't remotely interested in it. He was American to his fingertips. And I always perceived him as, as, as American with no hyphenated um, prefix. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you. 
You know, um, Joe Mars, one thing we barely talked about at all are the, the Reagan people who surrounded him. Um, yet it is often said by his critics that the no modern president uh, presided over a group more of whose members ultimately went to prison. Well, until the Clinton administration then, isn't it? Um, I, I dispute that imputation. Uh, th there was wonderful press that was given to Congresswoman Pat Schroeder's development during the Reagan administration of the sleaze list. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but that's a game you can play in, in any administration. The fact of the matter is, I think, that Reagan showed a remarkable ability to surround himself with people with whom at various points in his life he had had disagreements, uh, who had been competitors, uh, campaign managers of his opponents, but he would absorb them. Uh, find what seemed to him uh, and to his his uh, top colleagues uh, the, the appropriate niche. There were a, there were a handful of people to whom he was supremely close and, and, yeah. and always so, including including Edwin Meese. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, there are three Californians for whom he seems to have had very high regard, and you seem to share that high regard for at least two of them. Meese is the one. The other two are Cap Weinberger and George Shultz. Oh, I think the, the Californian person who was closest to him without question was Judge Clark, William Clark. Yeah, sure. The, um, who didn't last very long in the... Uh, well, the, he lasted most of the first the term. National Security Advisor. Mm, he, he lasted most of the first term. First he was Assistant Secretary, Secretary of State. State. Deputy Secretary of State, sorry. Mm -hmm. And then he was National Security Advisor, and then Secretary of the Interior. <laughs> and spiritually and philosophically, Bill Clark was closer to him, much more so than George Shultz. I find that we have just about used up all of the available time. Do you feel free of a great burden in having completed the book? And I think I'll be free of it after these six weeks of publicity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, Dutch, a memoir of Ronald Reagan by Edmund Morris, has just recently been published by Random House. And, of course, Edmund Morris has been one of our guests tonight, and the other has been a treasured old friend, uh, Joseph Morris. One of the emails we got today say, said, why don't you have Joe Morris on more often? If we had you on any more often, we'd have to pay you, I think. <laughs> Joseph Morris is... Uh, of the law firm of Morris, Rathnow, and De La Rosa, uh, and he has many other eminences, including a number of important posts that he served during the Reagan administration. A few quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow night, we're going to be talking about the retail book trade and the independent bookstores and the great trouble therein, indeed the continuing conflict between the vast bookstores and, for that matter, also the uh, online email uh, or e-stores for book sales. Uh, there's a book about a famous independent bookstore, which will provide the basis for our discussion. And uh, we're joined by various others who know a great deal about this. Wednesday night, the great violinist Isaac Stern joins us. We'll also listen to some of his music and discuss it with him. All of that will happen uh, tomorrow night and the next night. But for now, time only to say a cordial good night to all. Chicago's News and Talk, Radio 720, WGN Chicago, a Tribune Broadcasting Station. Here's the latest from ABC News.